Adam Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living on Dakota and Anishinaabe land currently known as Minneapolis. And I am Adrienne Marie Brown, a writer, student of miracles and love, emergent strategist and pleasure activist living on Anishinaabe territory currently known as Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And I'm so excited um, about what's happening today because we have on someone who I've been a fan of big time for quite some time. Um, And I'm going to introduce her, but I wanted to give a little context for this. So last season, Autumn and I had a conversation about being Black mixed people, co-hosting this podcast and being in the world and being facilitators and organizers, et cetera. And we asked people, do you want more of this? Because generally we talk about survival out as an external thing and not so much about like, here's our identities inside of it. And there's a part of that that feels really tied into what it means to move into the into surviving this apocalypse because it's a white supremacist capitalist apocalypse. So people said they wanted to hear more about this. They wanted more authentic explorations of this space. So when this book came out that we're about to talk about was re-released, I was like, this, I think, could give people a number of different lenses into this conversation. And everything this person says is brilliant. And so we have today Yaba Blay on our show officially, ah. um, the one and only. And I want to say my first experience of you that I was like, oh, so you're, you start a professional black girl. You are this like exquisite, brilliant race scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of you as a pleasure activist and someone who's uplifting joy, black joy all the time. But then you also do this thing called Judgment Free Zone, which definitely listeners here have heard me talk about as a major survival mechanism for me, where you take the best of the entire internet and offer it to people on Instagram if we don't get on your nerves. Basically, it's like <laughs> if, we, if we are not too annoying, we earn Judgment Free Zone. You're also besties now with Brene Brown. You love onesies. <laughs> There's so much about you that I feel like people just need to understand how fantastic you are. So Yabba Blay, um, we wanted to welcome you to our show. Is there anything that you want to make sure people know about you just on an introduction level before we mm-hmm. <laughs> move into combo? Uh, I want people to know that I was trying very hard not to cackle in my <laughs> microphone as you were doing that introduction. <laughs> but no, thank you, Adrian. I'm happy to be here. We are so grateful to have you. Thank you for being with us. So, you know, we always start our shows with a little, just a little bit of a check-in. How are we finding you today? And we'd love to hear from you first, Yaba. How are we finding you today? How are you doing? Today I am doing okay and okay is okay with me. I've been really busy here lately, but I'm not stressed, which is not usual for me. So I'm celebrating that. Um, more recently, when folks ask me how I'm doing, I tend to answer keeping hope alive. Um, so I'm keeping <laughs> hope alive. Um, but I'm, I'm good. Thank you. How y'all yeah, doing? Thank you. Well, I can go next. Um, this is Autumn. And um, I... Yeah, I I resonate with the noticing when you're not stressed, busy but not stressed. Um, 
you know, I have found myself recently answering the question with the like, I'm pandemic good, you know, <laughs> and um, one of the things I'm noticing in, just in terms of how I'm doing is because of the constraints of pandemic life, I have very little cause to rush anymore, to like be rushing anywhere or trying to multitask, like do doing multiple things as I'm in transit from uh, one place to another place because I'm so rarely in transit. Um, and what this has meant is that if I do have to rush, I really don't know how to do it. It's amazing how quickly the skill of <laughs> like rushing elegantly lose, like just leaves the system. Um, so I've had lots of spills lately. Um, if, I, if I'm having to rush in any way at all, eventually I drop something. And, um, and it, but it feels good. It actually feels like a good thing to be like, ah, I cannot rush anymore. I do not know how. And so I actually just shouldn't. I will not anymore. Um, but it's, it's good. It's good to like, it's good to feel the slowness in my life after so many years of feeling like I just was trying to fit 24 hours into 16. Mm -hmm. um, Adrian, how are you doing? Uh, I feel um, already a little calmer hearing both of you. <laughs> um, I've been in like a little major, not a little, like a major interview moment where it's just like one interview after another. Um, we're in this window of Octavia Butler's passing. So she, she passed away 15 years ago. Um, and so there's just been more conversations with and around and about her work. Um, and I've just been steeped in those and it's been beautiful. And, um, but it's been a lot, a lot of thinking, a lot of like grief, you know, the way you, you I just think about like, what would it be like if she was still here? Um, so I've been in some of that and I am working on my first novella and I am so excited. I just got like, you know, my, my here's two week deadline for the, the next draft to be in. So I'm like, okay, off the internet, close everything. Anything that's not the novella is not now, you know? And mm -hmm. it's so thrilling. It's so thrilling. Like this feels like the dream come true. And I think you all know this as writers. It's just those moments where it's like, okay, this is your dream, but now it's actually due. And now you <laughs> have to do you it. Yesterday. Now you have to write that. So all the, there's so many feelings that bubble up with that. And I'm enjoying all those feelings. Mm. Yeah. So that's me. Beautiful. And I think we can move into our flume of rage here. Petty, angry. Flume of rage. Flume of rage. Flume of rage. Flume of rage. Flume of One of the rage. things I feel like is a perpetual condition right now is like, oh, there's so much to be frustrated about, or angry about, or upset about. And there's also a lot of good. There's a ton of beauty. Um, you know, I was thinking about like so many people are releasing books that I'm so excited are out and like all this stuff, you know, I'm like your book, Yaba, which we're going to be talking about all day today. But I was also like, yeah. And Sonia Renee Taylor's book is, you know, all these books are going on the New York times. Everything's ha It's just like so much is moving. It's Miriam Kaba's book just hit the New York times. Like there's like all these people that, you know, we're in community and look up to and it's like this is a beautiful time a lot of growth a lot of skill a lot of sharing is happening so the thing I had to like reach I was like what am I upset about right now because there's really not that much reach for it and the thing that came to mind was I I saw this video yesterday 
about Mumia uh, contracting COVID in prison. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for folks who have followed Mumia, Mumia Abu-Jamal is a political prisoner, incredible writer, incredible thinker, has offered so much to us, visionary, and um, has done, you know, for many of us, our entire knowledge of that has been during his time behind bars. Yeah. And they have just been organizing for him to be out of prison um, for years, especially uh, because he's had hep C and it's been really impacting his health. He can't get the care that he needs um, in that space. So there's incredible calls for um, how to support him getting out of prison, um, especially right now. You know, him having COVID uh, with his pre-existing condition in those conditions, it's just a really bad recipe. So there's uh, calls for action, uh, to make phone calls, to put pressure for his release. Um, and we can include those in our show notes. Um, but I'm also just, it, it infuriates me how, um, how the prison industrial complex can value people's lives and keep them from the care that they need. And how during this period of COVID, we have not been able to like move the needle on this and just get people out of those dangerous conditions. So yeah, when I really drop into that, it, it makes me furious. And that's my, mm. that's my rage today. <sighs> what y'all got? Anything? It could be heavier. It can be lighter. You know, rage can be in a lot of places. But Well, now I'm rethinking because that just annoyed me. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's high on the scale of rage, right? Um, mine may not be as high on the scale, but as I'm thinking about it, you know, we're in what the world is calling Women's History Month. We just got passed through Black History Month. And, you know, given the heightened wokeness that emerged during quarantine, um, mm-hmm. I wasn't looking forward <laughs> to Black History Month because I thought that folks were going to be extra. And uh-huh. they weren't which was surprising. I think the thing that if we're talking about annoyances, what annoyed me is that Black History Month comes every single year. We know it's February every single year. And this year, more than any other year, people were raggedy, meaning that they reached out on January 28th to announce that they're having a Black History program and can I be your keynote speaker? Right? <gasps> no. Like the new Black History Month was coming. And then I've seen it with Women's History Month. So I'm, I'm, you know, on the one hand, I'm thankful because we've all been trying to figure out how we're going to get through, you know, for those of us who are independent contractors, through quarantine, right, not being right. able to get on trains, planes, automobiles, and, and, and speak and such. So thankful, but also, don't do that. <laughs> like, no. how can we just no. be a little bit more prepared, you know, to show that you <laughs> value the very thing that you claim to be wanting to do? If you want someone to be your keynote, A... Bring them in early on in the planning to see if you can get on their schedule. And then B, mm-hmm. don't also tell them that you don't have any money. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Not only am I late and raggedy, but I would love if you could do this for free. For or, free. Or, you know, whatever. And again, it's not about the money. It is about the money, but it's not mm-hmm. like here's the scale <laughs> and you don't reach it. But also like, if you know you're raggedy, make up for it by saying, I'm so sorry for being late. But here you go. Here's, Here's a little twenty thousand dollars for your effort. <laughs> exactly, you know? the raggedy tax. Yeah, so that's what's <laughs> just been annoying me because it's people are still planning Women's History Month, and we are well into March. Mm. That's all. Oh my! Oh my! My 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 my! Yes, it's like 
Mm, you better be offering me 20,000. Better be offering me 20,000. <laughs> They're not. I just, I really, yeah, the free requests, the requests for free, the requests for free. Um, my favorite is when the request for free comes after the excitement has built, you know, where it's like, ooh, we're having an exchange. Ooh, this sounds so exciting. Ooh, and then, oh, oh, but you want it. Oh, you didn't even know? Okay. Um, <laughs> that is the worst. Um, I, I guess I can, I can close us out on the flume by looping back to the issue of healthcare. I saw a meme on the internet <laughs> in one of my rare moments um, of seeing memes, um, which was someone posting a, it was an image of this like uh, mock-up of a space hotel announcement about this I did yeah, the space hotel that's supposed to be ready by 2027 and then the person who posted it was like we literally just want healthcare <laughs> and that thing's that, so hard because that was also on my flu list and I'm just like girl that hotel it's the hotel the space hotel that just the the blatant it's these moments to me that's like the sort of the the blatant disregard for um, meeting basic human needs, or blatant disregard for the very idea that we would um, that we would first orient to meeting people's basic needs prior to um, doing things that are at that scale um, and that scale of luxury, that scale of waste. Um, because I I really do think like what could be more wasteful than going to space just to be there. You know, I think if it was a hotel on the way to Mars, where we have a whole other, you know, um, civilization that we've created <laughs> over there, that makes sense to me. But just flying up into space to be like, here we are <laughs> in right, space. Right. It's so great that that is the definition of waste. Um, just think of the fuel involved. So yeah, that's outrageous. my flume. And I say that as someone who really genuinely loves the idea of space exploration. Like I'm so not, much. I'm a Star Trek fan. I am not against space exploration. I am against space hotels that are not a point on a destination. <laughs> Wasteful. Wasteful space Wasteful. experiences. Wasteful space experiences. Yeah, right. exactly. That's great. Thank you all. I, <laughs> I, every time I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to be. And then once I get it off my chest, I'm like, nope, that's better. That mm. is better. <laughs> yes. Feel the freedom. So let's shift into interview mode. We have lots of questions for you. Huh? <laughs> okay. And yeah, excited. It just excited. Um, first of all, we have our books with us. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, our listeners can't see this, but we're just no. both sitting they here. They can't, with our but we're cheesing with our books. Exactly. This book is so <laughs> gorgeous. Thank you it's so really... much for making this. And making it again. Yeah. Yeah. And we wanted to start um, by, by um, especially since, you know, many of our listeners um, will not have had a chance to see or read um, One Drop, um, which is to be both seen and read. Um, I'm wondering if you can just start by telling us about this book, you know, what inspired the original conception and release of the book in 2013, and then also what inspired you to re-release it? Mm -hmm. So the book, it's interesting. I never, I didn't start out to create a book. I thought that I would be creating a digital project 
I'm a very visual person and a lot of mm. um, and a visual learner, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of what makes things hit home for me is being able to connect it to some visual um, manifestation of it. And so it's really a conversation about race in general, but specifically about blackness. And so my background is in black studies. My um, area of so-called expertise is colorism and skin color politics and body politics, particularly for black women and girls. So lots about skin color and hair texture and how we're seen in the world, right? How we make meaning of our own bodies in the world. And by the world, mm-hmm. I mean white supremacists, patriarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amongst but, the white know, supremacists. <laughs> um, so that's the general, like that's who I am in terms of what I do, right? It's what I've mm-hmm. been doing. Mm-hmm. And then I had this moment in 2010 where I was asked to be on a panel for the Caribbean Cultural Center in New York City to talk about colorism in the diaspora, right? On the panel, this is the first time I'm meeting this woman. And she keeps self-identifying as a Black Puerto Rican woman from the South Bronx. And the person I was seeing and those words that she was saying weren't aligning. And I was on that panel distracted the whole time because I'm trying to figure out how it was that she came to identify as a Black Puerto Rican woman from the South Bronx. This is Rosa Clemente, who I'm speaking of. And if y'all are familiar with Rosa, Y'all know that Rosa. Oh, yeah, I know Rosa. Yeah, Rosa, <laughs> yes. Rosa, Rosa always has something to say. She has immense words. So give that mm-hmm. energy to a panel. And, like, you know, we're talking about colorism, colorism, colorism. I'm sitting there like the way she said that she's a Black Puerto Rican, trying to understand how this works. Because, again, and I'm all over the place, but I know it will connect for us at some yeah. point. Yeah, take us there. So much of identity, right? Who we are is like who we are announcing ourselves to the world to be, right? Mm-hmm. I grew up in New Orleans, um, the daughter of immigrants. I'm first generation Ghanaian. I'm very dark skinned. I grew up in New Orleans, which has a long history of colorism and identity mm-hmm. politics, you know, mm-hmm. um, with folks who I self identify as Creole. So I knew that I was dark skinned probably before I knew how to spell my own middle name, right? It was always at right. the forefront of who I was, no question whatsoever. And New Orleans doesn't have a large Latinx community. So I didn't start meeting quote unquote Puerto Ricans until I moved quote unquote up north, you know, and uh-huh, in uh-huh. meeting Puerto Ricans, they were Puerto Rican, right? They said, I'm Puerto Rican. Nobody said I'm a white Puerto Rican. I'm a black Puerto Rican, right? I'm a Puerto Rican. So it just reminds me that a lot of times our construction constructions and conceptions of race, we have our own boxes, like there are boxes that the census gives us. And then we have our own boxes. So if someone right. says I'm black, right. I'm white, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm Domin- like Puerto Rican and Dominican are their own boxes. The census gives us Latinx, but Puerto Rican and Dominican, right? For the people mm-hmm. themselves, they're their own boxes. So all that to say, I'm on this panel. I've never met anybody who self-identified as Black Puerto Rican. And if I'm completely honest, there was a space in myself in that moment where I was literally asking, why would you, why would you do that? Right? Because in my experience, folks who had the opportunity to identify as something other than Black usually do, right? Mm. So I'm not Black, I'm Creole. I'm not Black, I'm Dominican. I'm not Black, I'm biracial. Insert whatever other language there is. So for you to add Black to Puerto Rican, to me, that's like, you want me to know something about you, right? Yeah. You're putting that on your card. You're you're handing me my card and like, yo, I'm Black. So after the panel, we talked some more. And it just got my head spinning, 
you know, because I was mm-hmm. trying to make sense of that experience, not only what she said, but my experience of it in my mm-hmm. body, right? Mm-hmm. With all the work that I had done up until that point. So up until that point, my dissertation is on skin bleaching in Ghana. You know, I'm talking about colorism um, and, and confronting white supremacy. I'd done work, uh, qualitative research on Creole identity, speaking to a family, intergenerational grandmother, daughter, and granddaughter about their identity as Creole. Like I've been talking about these things and I had never come in contact with somebody again, who could identify as something other than black who chose blackness, right? Wow. Doing the work helped me to understand for many folks, it's not a choice. It doesn't feel like a choice, right? So I just, you know, I I get these bugs. I get these bright ideas and I'm like, I gotta do something. And and that was the moment where I was like, I gotta do something. It also made me, start thinking about other experiences that I've had, you know, for better or for worse, checking my own self, um, questioning people's identity, not allowing people to be who they said they are, you know, mm-hmm. putting in, putting people, and I won't say boxes, I'm more, I want to say spaces. You know how you come in, a, in, in the contact with folks and it's like, you go over there, you know, I'm good yep. with you, but you go over there. Away from me, you know, away from me. more <laughs> like that. So folks that I come in contact with who, yeah, you know, you look like a variety of things. You say that you're whatever, you know, insert whatever um, identifier here. And that's cool for you. I don't buy it, but that's cool for you. So you go over there, you know, uh-huh, um, and uh-huh. just re- literally revisiting those relationships. Many of them are in the book, you know? So I got this bright wow. idea. And again, it wasn't a book. I just literally, I'm a qualitative researcher. I love being in people's business. I'm also a former therapist. Um, all those things come together in terms of how my my right how 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 I get curious about people's business. Um, so <laughs> I just set out on this this mission to talk to more people like Rosa and come to understand how they identify and how they see themselves connected to blackness when they don't quote unquote look black or you know folks yeah. like me probably the mainstream as well probably don't see them as black or having had the experience of being asked, what are you? Which is probably one of the rudest questions. People are rude in general, but like the idea, I've never <laughs> asked that question to somebody, but to hear so many people say, it could be in the grocery store and somebody's like, what are you? You know, it's like, why mm-hmm. is that your business? You know, but right, right. all the folks in the book have been asked, what are you? And so to be constantly put in a position of not only defining, but defending oneself, I've never had that attached to my blackness. My blackness is never brought into question because I'm dark skinned. Right. 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 Because of my, right. my, my features. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I got started. Wow. Wow. I really love all of that story and, and just want to put a fine point on what inspired the re-release now, because this book was already incredible and out in the world and you know I'd seen it a lot of people had seen it um what made you like now we need everybody needs this again because it feels so timely it wasn't me um first first time around um so in in the cycle of things started as a bright idea thought it was going to be a digital project started a website um because of social media got connected with uh folks from cnn ended up co-producing who is black in America, uh, agent reached out to me. This would be a dope mm-hmm. book, did a book proposal. She tried to sell it. All the publishers said no, right? Wow. Rejection after rejection after rejection. 
at the time they thought it was too expensive because of the school color photography. It literally said people don't read um, and people don't spend okay. $40 on a book. Um, so can we do it without pictures? No, we're having a conversation about racial identity based upon appearance. We need full color. Um, right. <laughs> so me being me, um, and and I've been talking about this some more lately, like confronting my own ego and trying to grow out of a space where I feel like I have to prove people wrong. At the time, my ego was like, all right, bet. You said I can't do it, watch this, right? So mm-hmm. I'm pulling out of my retirement. I'm doing a Kickstarter. I'm wow. putting money on credit cards. Like I was on a mission. I was going to create a book that you said was not going to be useful. So I printed this book myself and shout out to my community, my growing community. These folks, you know, feels like a lot of times all I have to do is ask, you know, and when I yeah. have the courage to ask people to support me. And so we made a book and the book won awards and the book sold mm. out. Mm, mm, and mm, um, mm, so it was out of print and folks were on Amazon selling my $40 book for $900, you know, and folks just kept oh. asking me. When are you going to reprint mm-hmm. it? How do I get a copy of the book? And I'm like, I can send you a PDF. I'll, you know, I, I just didn't have any plan. I had proven my point. And then I was over it. <laughs> right? right. So I didn't have any intention <laughs> of like reprinting the book. And so then what had happened is I was a part of the Share the Mic initiative last summer. I was paired with Abby Wambach. Abby, I sent her a oh. copy of the book as a gift. Mm-hmm. And she's on Instagram, like nanny nanny boo boo, showing it to people like I got the book, you know? And so folks <laughs> are hitting me, hitting me, hitting me like, yo, I want a copy, I want a copy. So I was like, all right, let me, you know, let me gauge with folks. If I did the book over, would you get it? What about paperback? And everybody's like, yes, please do it. I'll get a copy, I'll get a copy. So I was thinking like, okay, I'll print it again. At the mm-hmm. time, um, I have a friend who works in publishing. She's like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to print it again. You should see if a publisher would be down to do it. And I was already in talks with um, Tanya McKinnon, who's now my agent, because I have thoughts and dreams. Yeah, so thoughts and dreams of um, doing a second book. So we were already talking about that. And so I mentioned this Ah. to her. She's like, all right, let me me see what I can do. Send me your old proposal. Send me what you got. And she approached Beacon. And within a week, Beacon had picked it up. Wow. That's glorious. I love every part of that. Cause I remember when you did the share the mic and being like, Ooh, Abby and Glennon are so great. Yeah. And you know, cause they're those, they're great. Yeah. I was like, I watched the whole way that y'all were engaging. And I was just like, this feels so important in the racial discourse to see this kind of learning and exchange, but also friendship, yeah. <laughs> you know, just sort of like, there's, there's something about like what happens when it's not just like, I'm educating white people oh, about yes. white things, oh, yes. um, but actually like, no, we're, we're building here right. something. Which actually surprised me about myself. Uh-huh. I, don't... I was surprised too. I was like, you don't like white people? <laughs> Um, You know, I don't have patience for a lot of white people. I don't have patience for conversations about race with white people. Like, what's that book? And it's like, why I'm not talking about race with white people anymore? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel that because it's Mm -hmm. so exhausting. And this, yes, it wasn't an exhausting experience. So yeah, thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to spend more time there, but in a second, because I'm like, I want, there's so much around the book, particularly but then I think there's also like Autumn also spends a lot of time working on and with white people things. Um, and yeah, I have a question for both of y'all in a minute. But first, in this book, One Drop, you lay out the distinctions of mixed black, 
American Black and diasporic Black. And you were just telling us a bit about your own identity, but in terms of those markers, where do you identify and was it shifted by the research and scholarship that you did around this book? Um, I identify as diasporic Black. Um, uh-huh. Again, because I'm first generation. And you know, it's interesting, I'm learning more recently, people use that term differently than I do, first generation versus second generation, because I was born in the United States. So some folks might say I'm oh. second generation, but I use first oh. generation to mean that I'm the first generation born in America, but whatever. Right. Uh-huh. It's to say that my parents are Ghanaian, I was born here. And so in my mind, I'm Ghanaian. In my DNA, I'm Ghanaian. When I go mm-hmm. to Ghana, they're like, you're American. Um, right. <laughs> You know, I've learned the hard way and I've come to a peace, a peaceful place about it. But I think so mm-hmm. much of my development has been about trying to prove to Ghanaians that I'm Ghanaian and trying to prove to Americans that I'm also American. And that's also exhausting. So I've made peace with yep. who I am, you know, for myself. So I say diaspora Black, not just because my family is from Ghana, but because of the ways that I conceive of my Blackness is that I am connected to all people of African descent in this world. Right. Right. So all of all my people. Um, and that's how I see myself. And coming up with those categories for the book, it was really just me trying to think of how am I going to organize this book, <laughs> you know, and how am I going <laughs> to be able to like break this up a little bit to talk about different experiences. And so that's the best language I came with, you know, up with at the time to put people into uh, sections of the book. I think it's great. Yeah, that's so interesting too. Because I, when I was when I was looking at the book, I was thinking about that about like, oh, are these categories coming from your research, or is it coming from? Is it a way to make the set of stories you're presenting legible? Um, and you know, and and I think it is to me, it feels like such a courageous step to take to like put any organization to it, right? <laughs> because because it if it feels still so fraught. I mean, even inside myself, it feels anytime I make a shift in how I am self-identifying, which, you know, we, Adrian and I talked about this in the, the first episode that we did that was more sharing our personal stories, but that, you know, that over time, there have been these moments of kind of of like a ah over this year of my life I feel myself shifting and how mm. I am naming myself mm. how I'm naming myself to the world like either because there's something I need to put on my card or because there's something that I actually need to make legible to myself now yes. that I've been you know kind of like tucking down tucking it tucking yes. it back yeah. um let me say this before I forget I'm sorry, I, I wasn't able to listen to that episode before we're chatting now, but at some point in this conversation, I would love to know how you felt in your bodies as you read the book or as you looked mm-hmm. at the pictures. Yes. Well, and actually, we wanted to talk about the pictures next because okay. it is very, um, I mean, I'm sure that people, that different people, that how, how one ex- is going to experience a book like this is going to be very different depending on, <laughs> you know, how, around both your own light skinness, but also how you experience other people's light skinness. And I know that one of the things that that Adrian and I navigate as light skinned mixed race black people who are working in often in multiracial spaces, often or often around, um, you know, inflection moments around race that like the 
you know, our presences as light-skinned people in and of itself are, that is something we have to contend with, that the room has to contend with, mm -hmm. right? And so there's a lot of thoughtfulness we have to bring, but that is a very external, uh, externalization, you know, or there's an externalized way that that is being felt and experienced. Mm -hmm. It's about like how are people responding to me, reacting to me, and what do I, what do I need to do in order to ensure that I'm a, you know, creating as much safety in the container as possible. But it's different to just look at the images, just like me and my body <laughs> looking at these images. And, um, you know, and I, I don't know personally if I even have words to describe it yet, but, mm -hmm. um, but aside from like, uh, there is like, there's a relief and a tenderness and a sadness mm -hmm. and a mystery and like a, desire attraction like there's like there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in just look, looking at the pictures um but i one of the things that we wanted to ask you about is is about the 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 way of experiencing this book as a book of images mm -hmm. um that it feels like there's a way that this book is teaching us to see a wider view of ourselves. And um, one of the things that we were wondering about is if you, like in putting out a book like this, if, if part of your hope is that people are literally seeing the world differently after reading it or after looking at it, like are you hoping to really change the way that people are viewing the world around them? And also, you know, um, I mean, I think you started speaking to this already that that this process also produced quite a shift in you mm -hmm. in terms of how you <laughs> how you view and, and understand people and let them self-define. Mm -hmm. um, but would love to hear more about how how creating this work changed the way you are like moving through the world and looking at the world. Yeah, I think creating this work and having this process of, you know, not only having these interviews and conversations with folks, but then also, you know, a lot of these interviews took place on the phone right? Folks would connect us and say, you should talk to so-and-so. We'd have a little pre-conversation. We do the interview by phone. I did many in person, but most by phone. And then also scheduling a time to create a portrait. And Noelle and I are trucking out in the world with, you know, her, her equipment and then we're on set taking pictures. And the thing that I loved about working with Noelle, who's also featured in the book, is that in the same way that when I did the Q&A interview, I, you know, had it transcribed or I transcribed and then created a narrative out of that and then going back and forth with the contributors and even calling them contributors, right? That that yeah. I wanted to make sure they knew that this, I was not printing anything unless they said, this is my story, right? Same mm -hmm. with the photo shoots. We didn't say we're meeting here, wear this, you know, this is how we're creating the portraits. It was, where do you want to meet? Where would you want to wear? You know, want to wait, want to wear makeup, don't want to wear, it's up to, it's your portrait. So watching mm -hmm. her co-create their images with them as well, it was just a really beautiful process. And so adding that wow. to the interviews, I really felt like I got to know the them that they wanted to share with the world. Um, there's a part in the book where I say, um, you know, that maybe if we see Blackness different, differently, that we'll see Blackness differently, right? That if we had <laughs> those pictures. Yeah right and and connect it because there's so many people who tell me i'm reading a story a day or i got stuck at this story 
I had moments even when the book was re-released where I'm like reading the story and then looking at the picture. You're reading the story and then you're looking at the picture. It's like, how do these words align with this body that I'm looking at, you know? Mm. And so I know that that's the shift because if I did not allow myself to be open to receiving their stories and only move through the world with my experience of being dark-skinned growing up in New Orleans and how my interaction with, and not all Creoles, right? But with particular Creoles in my upbringing, if I, if I said everybody that looks like that, everybody that has hair like that, identifies like that, and therefore treats me like this, then that means every time I will come across somebody who even remotely looked like one, I would project and assume that that's who they are and be close to that. Because how else do I protect myself from rampant colorists? How else do I protect myself from someone saying some, you know, hateful, hurtful shit to me? You know, I can't yeah. go over there. <laughs> Stay yeah. away from me. I don't fool with you. And so I had to right. allow myself to be open to hearing their stories and the ways that they presented it. And so, you know, the book is a presentation of their truths. And I say that perhaps as a disclaimer, because some of the pushback that I've received over the years from a variety of spaces and places and people is that there's some assumption that either I am bigging up the one drop rule <laughs> and saying that that's how we should operate or that I am giving light-skinned folks a pass or that I'm somehow talking about reverse colorism if there's such a thing or that I'm saying that th here's the book, it's a fact, this is blackness, right? Mm. All I'm saying is just have look, <laughs> look, see, <laughs> see what the look. people say, yeah. how you feel about that? How do we make sense of that? You know, can you make sense of it, you know? And that's why I was also interested in presenting, you know, like you say, those those different um, sections, you know. So, yes, we have folks who are technically mixed biracial coming from two different, you know, parents of two different backgrounds. We also have folks in the diaspora, multi-general mixing, if that's the word we want to use. But we also have in the American Black section, we've got two women with vitiligo and two people with albinism. And I'm really just trying to be very literal. When you see someone who looks a particular way, what do you think mm -hmm. about their racial identity? Like racial identity, again, when we take it for granted, racial identity is not just what people look like. So the sister in there, Joanne, who has mm -hmm. vitiligo, that was mm -hmm. my reckoning with my, 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 whatever I had with Michael Jackson, <laughs> you know, um, when he was alive, because I do work on skin bleaching, people always bring him into the conversation, right? That he's an example of skin bleaching. But I always knew, just based upon the complexion that he became, that's not bleach. I don't care how much money he has. You can't do yeah, that to me. No. Right? Yeah. Because I know what people who bleach their skin look like. That's a different color altogether. Right? Now, again, Michael had so, so, so much money. So it's not to say that he wasn't able to speed the process of his vitiligo along in the search for having a uniform complexion. I don't know. I wasn't there. Right? Mm -hmm. But it is to say... Joanne was the first person that I met who said, I had vitiligo. This is what I used to look like. This is what this condition has done to me. And there's a picture of her holding up a picture of what she used to look like. And just to see her complexion wow. um, compared to what she looked like at that time, like, yeah, that, that shit sat on me for a long time. You know? Mm. So again, if you, if you meet her on the street, she might look white to you. She was born and had 30 something years of a very black experience. 
just because she looks different, you can't take that blackness away from her. You see what I'm saying? So is blackness wow. just about what you look like? Right. Questions, more questions than answers. More questions than answers. <laughs> oh, yes, this is, I mean, yeah, but I think mm. this is why to me, this is a really radical book. Um, and you asked the question, how did we feel in our bodies looking in the book? And I want to honor and answer that question, which is, um, I felt, uh, being uh, seen, you know, I felt seen. Like I was just like, Oh, these are all people whose stories are, are black stories. And, and they're telling them as black stories. And however I feel about, you know, those stories, this is how they're holding them. And as someone who I'm like, my story is a black story. And, you know, one of the things about being mixed that is always intriguing to me is I'm like, I don't have a white experience. I have a mixed experience. <laughs> I have a black experience. Um, and I don't have a white experience. And I don't have an assumption that there's a positivity associated with a proximity to whiteness, um, which I think is a lot of how how race was structured and how blackness particularly was structured was that it was blackness is about being as far from whiteness as possible so that we can um, oppress you and enslave you and put you in your place. And so any proximity to whiteness is still constantly being searched for like, how can I put you in your place? And I think that those um, who are of us who are, are light skinned and who have had to move in those white spaces really know this intimately, how violent it is to be in that space. And I saw that on so many of the stories is people are like, you assume that being light-skinned is like, you know, oh, I walk in the door and white people just like, yes, girl, you're one of us. And it's like, that never, ever, ever, ever happens. Instead, even when there's a smile on the face, you're constantly put in your place in some way, perform for us, dance for us, you know, do what we want you to do. So. And I wouldn't have known that. Not, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I think that's what was so powerful and moving for me doing the work. I wouldn't have known that, right? So it's a, it's a confrontation for all of us to recognize how much we project meaning onto other people. Right. And it's until you actually have a conversation with somebody and allow them to tell you their story that you would even know. Because again, even as I talk about white supremacy now, we talk about an approximation to whiteness giving people privilege. So I'm not denying the privilege at exactly. all, but what does privilege, how do I process privilege in my mind? How do I project yes. privilege onto people? Yes, mm -hmm. there's privilege, but like you say, it doesn't mean that white folks are throwing flowers at your feet. Well, and also it's like, if we know the psychic toll, if we know the psychological toll that white supremacy in and of itself is taking on white people, right? Which I would argue <laughs> is like, we are hundreds of years into this project and we can see what it's doing to white people, right? We can see what it's doing to white people based on what they are doing to our planet, right? Like you can't argue that it's that 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 in the long in the big 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 long term of this, you can't argue that white supremacy is is been good for white people either. No. And so then it's like this I I think it's like we have this really false sense of what it means to have privilege inside this system because it's like okay, yeah, privilege as we get closer and closer to something that is killing us. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, that yes. part that part and yes. then you know and then I think there is this um what you're offering and what I'm so interested in and I think what Toni Morrison was talking about is like then how do we decenter that and how how what does the conversation look like if 
whiteness is not the proximity, but the conversation is centered around blackness. And that's what I felt in this book. It's like, this is a conversation that is started from a dark skinned black woman talking about blackness and looking around and being like, what do I see? What, mm -hmm. what can you all see? What can we all see um, in terms of these all being part of blackness? Mm -hmm. And it just felt like, a, it felt like, a, <laughs> you know, when you look at those pictures where it's like, this is an old woman. No, it's a young woman or whatever. <laughs> like, it's like suddenly <laughs> something happens with your eyes. I felt like that. And I was really, really impressed, really pleased um, that you had at least pushed this conversation because it feels like this is a conversation we need to have if we're truly going to make white supremacy a part of history as opposed to an ongoing, dogged, um, un frustrating, and violent part of the present. Um, which brings me to the question I had, which it feels like this is a very spicy, edgy, black and white time, right? Mm -hmm. That like, we go through these moments in the pendulum where it's like, everyone's like more mixed and, and then it swings back. It's like, fuck, it's like very, very segregated. And I mean that not at the level of like, you know, the school stays segregated, the economy stays segregated, but the culture goes back and forth, I think, in these pendulum swings. And it'll be like on TV, you know, we're mixing and there's a mixed culture we're moving towards mixing. I think the Obama years were kind of like, yeah, we're all doing great, right? Post-racial, mm -hmm. everybody's together, it's fine. And right now it feels like we are justifiably furious as Black people <laughs> because we're like, you know, every move forward pushes us back and we end up now we have this very short fuse with white people. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it feels like a, a smart short fuse that we have mm. with white people, but it also seems like it spills into our community as a tension between us. And this is something I'm really interested in, in our conversation is where do you see light skinned people with black and African lineage fitting into the fray of this very black and white polarized time. Where do I see? Yeah. <laughs> I think it depends on where they see themselves. I uh -huh. think one thing that this doing this project in this way has done for me, um, for better or for worse, it's almost like if we had had this conversation 28 years ago when I was a young grad student in black studies at Temple and we were all walking around with our dashikis and afros, we might yeah. be having a different conversation, right? Like in that time, I might've been the person who would have been fighting you down, Adrian, if you self-identify as mixed. Well, what's mixed, Adrian? What's mixed? You know uh -huh. what I mean? Like trying to uh -huh. force you to say black, right? Yeah. That's exhausting, right? I can't make you be anything or anybody other than who you see yourself to be. I had to learn that, right? Also, blackness is too beautiful to be forced in anybody to accept it or to claim it. If you don't want it, if you don't want it, that's cool. Don't want you either, right? Mm -hmm. But it becomes right. that kind of it right. becomes that kind of you know tension, and there's lots of history behind that. So in this moment, where do folks who are mixed fit in? Okay, moment of honesty. I accept it's not my experience. I don't know what it's like to be faced with particular choices. I don't know what mix is supposed to communicate in this context, right? Yeah. What is it that you want me to know when you use the language of mixed or biracial, for example? Yeah. Mm. It is a genetic fact, yes. But as you said, there's a white experience, there's a black experience. We want to somehow position mixed and biracial as like in between. Yeah. But for from from what I've learned for folks who, you know, have parents of two different races, because of the one drop rule, because of the particular insidious history of white supremacy and the historic le legacy of like racial codification and definitions, 
as a mixed race person, you can have a black experience. You can have a mixed experience, whatever that is. You cannot have a white experience. So are you mixed? Is it the best of both worlds? Right. You have access to both. What does it mean to occupy that middle space? Again, I don't know. Right. But I think the last four years with the person who was in office, that, Hmm. that I think what that, what new for many of us, but what it brought to the fore for so many other people who were choosing to believe that we are the world was that things are very much still black and white for a lot of people. They may use different languaging. They might, you know, somehow believe that, that this is a quote unquote diverse world and so many people were all just getting along. But when it comes down to it, we are still in yeah. black and white. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the thing. So this is where I'm appreciating this so much. <laughs> I'm like, I feel like this is a conversation I'm always hungry for is, you know, I feel like when I was, when I was younger, you know, I was like, I'm black and mixed, you know, I'm, and my mom who's white, she was always like, you know, you, no one else can force you to figure this out. Like, this is going to be something you have to figure out. Like, I can't tell you, I've never been in your experience and, and your dad's never been in your experience. Like you're the only one who's in this, you know, you're going to have to figure this out. And I remember for years, you know, being like, okay, well, I'm figuring out, you know, mixed person, whatever. And then when I got politicized, I was like, I'm black it was just very clear for me. I was like, Oh, like I'm, I'm black. I'm a black mixed race person. And the mixed race felt important when I was in black community, because I mm. feel like if I said I was black without that, then mm. people would be like, um, <clears throat> you forgetting something, you forgetting some part of your story that feels important to include. Yeah. And, you know, now I feel most comfortable in, in saying I'm black. My experience feels like a black experience, but I also feel this you know, resurgence of energy around, you know, needing to have more categorization. And I'm interested in it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Because I think what is behind it is less about the categorization and more about this idea that there is some accountability that light-skinned and mixed-race people have around mm. the space that we take up, around how colorism plays out, how we partner in it, how we, complicit, how we are complicit in it or not complicit in it, what are we unlearning inside of mm. the great unlearning inside right. of the great claiming? Right. Um, and, and I feel like right. there's not enough spaces where it's not like a call out past a conversation moment. There's not a space to be like, yeah, light skin, black skin, dark skin, rich skin, all the skins, people coming together and saying, what does that accountability actually look like? What do, what do dark skin Americans, black Americans right now wish that light skin and mixed race Americans knew and were practicing. Mm. Well, you know what I'm gonna say, um, I was listening, but I'll tell you that I was struck when you say politicize, because I think mm-hmm. that that's the ding, 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 ding for me, yep. right? Mm. That understanding blackness as a political identity. And, and you know, when I had, yeah. the con- I had a conversation with Glennon Doyle um, a couple of weeks ago to you know promote the book and what have you. And one of the Glennon. things that <laughs> One of the things I just that... have to say, just a shout out to Glennon that Autumn oh, yeah. has heard me. Like I read <laughs> Untamed, and then I would not stop literally badgering Autumn that she needed to read this book by Glennon Doyle. So <laughs> when I went... <laughs> and I'm slow to do things, so it's probably going to be another five years before I read it. But truly, it was like this clip, this podcast episode, this this person is so amazing. I'm just like, I've never seen you this excited about a white woman. Like what is happening? It's very, very rare. It's basically Brene and Glennon. That's it. Yeah. So I'm yeah. just like, 
I'm like, you've talked to all the all the white ladies. Anyway, yeah, so. but the good ones, right? The ones, the ones that I think, exactly. I think the ones who get it and the ones who are exactly. willing. Or to like get you it. said, the ones where it's not work. It's, it's actually not work. like relational. Mm-mm, yeah. It absolutely. One of the things that came up in the conversation, I was telling her that um a lot of the pushover that I got the first time around was from white mothers of of mixed race children, right? Because Again, if they thought that I was telling everyone that you're black no matter what, literally saying, where do I fit in, right? And so we're talking about your child's identity and you have now centered yourself. And so you (laughs) are forcing, like parenting is a whole nother conversation, right? And I don't have the answers because I've parented a black child. I don't know what it's like to partner with someone of another race, let alone have a child with one. That seems like a job that folks should prepare themselves for before they give birth, right? But (laughs) the idea that you are now telling your child who they are and the language that you give them as an option is either mixed or biracial, right? You don't even tell them that black is an option for them. Mommy's white, daddy's black, therefore you're mixed. So then you've got this child growing up not knowing they had access to blackness or not knowing that, or and that they don't have access to whiteness, right? And they also don't come to learn the history of race in a particular way because you send them to school and we definitely didn't get it from there, right? And so for some folks that I've spoken to that didn't actually make it to the book for a variety of reasons, like th- there were no other options, yeah, right? In yeah. terms of identity development, because this is what their family said. And again, I'm, I'm being honest, you know, so yeah, don't be mad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm so grateful that you are. And I feel like we are that, you know, like I'm like, this is this is what we need to do. This is why you wrote this book. So we can have honest conversations yeah. about these fault lines. What I was going to say in this honest moment is that when I sit mm-hmm. back and look at these experiences, right. I don't know. I just want people to not be delusional about the world yeah. that we live in. Like the, we are the world and everybody can get a long thing. It lasts until some shit goes down. Right. Yeah. And so if you're not prepared for that reality, then when some shit goes down, you're calling all the black people, you know, to apologize, you know, because mm-hmm. somehow your mind is blown that this could have even happened. Whereas we've always been clear that it's a possibility. I say that to say, when I sit back and watch, and again, it's just my perspective and I'm, I know I'm not seeing everything, but like the ways in which people try to navigate raising mixed race children, I think it's violent to send a child to an all white environment if they're not white themselves. I think it's violent mm-hmm. even, mm-hmm. and maybe more so because it's family. You see what I'm saying? Like the idea that there's a white family, there's a black family, wow. you're going to go spend time with your white family, but I'm the only one that's mixed. How does that wow. feel to me to be different in this space? Right. Which could be depending on the family different. If you send me to my all black family, again, I'm not saying right, wrong. I'm just observing because I, I don't think we, and I'm thinking specifically from a perspective, the perspective of a white mother who would say, what about me? What about your child? Do you think about your, like, are we prioritizing family? And we do this in a lot of ways, not just yeah. with this, right? But we <laughs> prioritize family as the end all be all and something that can't be questioned or negotiated. I have to send my child here because it's family. Even if family is violent, no. Even if family is unaffirming, you know? Mm. So, and again, this is my experience because I know how violent all white spaces have been to me, right? 
And so I also recognize the potential for that violence for someone who is mixed race, primarily because of so many of the stories that I learned from folks who are mixed race and talking about their white family and talking about the guilt that they had. You know, I use this language because of my mom. I wanna make sure my mom is acknowledged in this. And it's like, again, no judgment, but I don't have to acknowledge my parents and how I identify, you know what I mean? I'm dark skinned, they're dark skinned, right? But as I think about my mm. identity, yes, I acknowledge myself to be American born Ghanaian, not just because of my parents, because that's my that's my genealogy, that's my legacy, that's my culture, it's my mm. ancestral right, right? But also, I could be a person who walks around and says, I'm Ghanaian, I'm not black. Uh-huh. Right? Because of our limited understandings of blackness. For me. All this to say, understanding Blackness as a political identity, I know that Blackness is the bigger box. It's the bigger umbrella under which we all fall, right? And it's because I recognize the politic race that there's yes. a time for me to say I'm Ghanaian. There's a time for me to acknowledge that I'm Black. And so, mm. again, from mm. where I sit, I wonder for the folks who are saying I'm mixed, I'm biracial, I'm Cabernet Asian if they recognize that there's a time to say that, right? It may be a footnote or a highlight to your blackness. Do you recognize that in a political conversation yes. about racial identity, there's a time to be black, but if you don't want it, it's fine. But I just wonder yeah. if folks recognize, you know what I mean? Racial identity, it's not one or the other. Yeah, but I yeah. love where you're going with this because I think too that the fact because you're what you're speaking to is um discernment right like the sure. like mm -hmm. the both the sense of <laughs> the capacity to own our own identities and then also to be discerning about what language we use depending on context and I think that it, it makes so much sense when you think about one, right? Like racial categorization being something that most people experience as being done to them, right? Yeah. And and so it's like already there's agency that's been taken from us in that process. And then I think you're absolutely right that for most um, mixed race, biracial, light skin, people, it's like there's there's agency taken in multiple ways from mm -hmm. from um from us in terms of our ability to self-define right mm -hmm. um and i think that so i love i love the invitation to say like bring a capacity of discernment <laughs> Right. That it's like it's never there's never going to necessarily be one answer that is always the right answer in every context. And that's right. OK, because the nature of this, the next the nature of the construct is that it is so much more complex than mm -hmm. um, the language that we have to hold it is part of what I'm hearing, too. Um, and I think right. I mean, it's interesting to to hear you saying the pace about, you know, in some in some I know the setting in which I need to say I'm Ghanaian and I know the setting in which I need to say I'm black. Um, and one of the questions we had for you was about how like what what a diasporic black lens can offer to black folks in America mm -hmm. at this time. Right. Like what mm -hmm. what would it mean to be able to bring more of that like global diasporic, the sense mm -hmm. of that, the wholeness of blackness, the complexity mm -hmm. of blackness 
into this political moment that we are in? You know, acknowledging, accepting, um, claiming a diasporic Black um, identity has been, I don't know, it's one of the, probably one of the most beautiful points of, I think, my own racial and cultural identity development because I don't sit in this space ever accepting the idea that I'm a minority. No, I don't even <laughs> use that language. I side-eye people who do. Like, do you know how many of us there are in this world, right? And again, whether it be opportunity, resources, privilege, what have you, so many of us don't have the opportunity to actually get up and move out into the world and see the world. Or when we do, you know, we go to resorts and stay there. You know, we don't see where folks actually live, but it's taken me to get up out of my comfort zone and go and explore the world. And I, there's so many places I want to see, but I talk about all the time, aha moments going to Puerto Rico, aha moments going to Brazil, aha moments going to Mexico, right? Because again, those places as projected through our screens, they don't get aha moment being in, in Miami, right? Because it's like <laughs> the images that we get on our screen are very limited and that's by design. Okay, so the Brazil that we get is not going to let Yaba on the, watching the TV know that there are so many people who, most of the people in Brazil look like you, sis. All your people in Brazil too, right? The, the Brazil that comes through the TV is real. More separation, more distance, more, right? Possibility that you actually are a minority, right? Um, going to Puerto Rico, again, even with the experiences that I had with Puerto Ricans going there and be like, you black like me. You know, and then also not not being limited to what we look like, but also there's a there's a heartbeat that we share. You know how we, how we eat, how we move, how we interact. Like there are so many places in the world that feel like home, yeah, just because of the vibration that is there, mm -hmm. much more so than the United States, mm -hmm. because of the vibration that's just at the forefront of how people interact with one another. You know what I'm saying? So for me recognizing that I am of the diaspora has been so affirming, regardless of whether or not the folks themselves see it, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> it absolutely does. And I feel deeply the same way. Like I, one of the things I think is most healing for, for me as a Black person, and it's something I recommend to Black people all the time, is I'm like, get out Please. of these <laughs> borders. Please. Go anywhere else and you will see just how prevalent Blackness is and how beautiful Blackness is. And I find, I have found the most healing, you know, to me, healing it was landing in mm -hmm. both Morocco where everyone looked like me, everyone. And they were like, um, are you Berber? Like what? I mean, you know, and I was just like, I've literally never wow. had this experience. I've never, I've only ever in my life been in places where everyone looked like something else than me. And suddenly I was in a place where like walking down the street, wow. every day, the facial structures that, and it was just like, Oh, that's yeah. an older mixing, but yeah. this is what happens at this border line. Right. Um, and I think there is a reminder when we travel outside the U S that there is mm -hmm. something, a blackness that is before whiteness. Right. There is a, there is something that is a, before the trauma of white supremacy 
there we were there <laughs> and 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 not to cut you off what's also affirming i just keep coming back to the space we are still here exactly i've been trying, for, <laughs> centuries. Been trying <laughs> yeah. for centuries to take us out exactly and we still here exactly still with the same connected vibration mm-hmm. all over the world exactly. you pick us up on boats and drop those off everywhere. And we're still connected. <laughs> exactly. You tried it. You can't win. <laughs> exactly. It makes it like you're winning right now. Exactly. In the long term. You, you win. cannot win. And that, I mean, it literally, my heart is like bursting open right now. Because I'm like, then to return to Black space as a political space, as a spiritual space, as a healing space, as a communal space. And to set down the part that whiteness has, has marked with. It's like, you will never belong. It's to set that down at the door and be like, look, it might take y'all a while. I'm here. <laughs> Right. Right. Um, There is something so healing about that, too, because I I feel like I'm like, oh, that's it. You know, I hear people um, mix, mix people and mix kids with, you know, like, where do I belong? I don't belong anywhere. You know, Mariah Carey project. Right. And it's just like it's you. You have to also declare it. Right. You have to declare it like this is what black this is also what blackness is in the world is what you said, declaring I'm not a minority in in this world or in any other and declaring I belong. I belong wherever I I am. And it's not a question, you know? And language, you know this, language is so important. Like we have to be so conscious and deliberate about the language that we use. Oftentimes the options are given to us. That is also by design. You will not hear me say third world. You will not hear me say non-white. You will not hear me say minority. Like I'm not using language to participate in the system that wants me to somehow delude myself into believing that I'm not enough, Mm. that I'm not human that I don't belong. That's y'all's language. That's right. That's part of y'all's mission. I don't have to accept it. Not and I don't have to continue, you know, to say it. And that's the kind of critical thinking that I got, you know, training in Black studies um, yeah. to question everything. And so for me, I'm asking us to just ask all the questions. I'm yes. not trying to come up with a manual how to, this is the answer. This ask. I want you to ask more questions yes. because that critical lens will make you rethink and receive so much. That's right. Going backwards to move forward. That's like right. question all of it. Don't just accept that which we're giving. Race is not a fact. That's it's right. not science That's for right. us to just take like this. Literally not. <laughs> I need more Do we know data. how this started? <laughs> right. right. It, whiteness right. is the biggest delusion. So huge. They created that shit for a reason. Yes. You know, and it's shifted over time. So I'm just trying, again, I'm not asking any of us to memorize history, but at least know certain <laughs> parts that are really important to this narrative. Oh, you know, yeah. whiteness yes, was created. It was created. Boom. That changes everything. You know, this is, I mean, okay, we've got to, we do have to transition, but I keep saying like, okay. this is the work I do around imagination. You know, that I'm like, we are living inside of someone else's imagination and it is a white supremacist, patriarchal capitalist imagination, but it's still imagination. And so Amen. we can counter that. We can have our own Amen. understandings, our own ideas. And anyway, you're brilliant. Um, so we're going to shift into our final <laughs> little segment. I, it was oh, not over. long enough. We could talk to you forever. I, I feel like I was like, ooh, <laughs> I could talk to you for so Yeah, we, I think we could do <laughs> a whole season of Yabba Blood. Um, <laughs> Please come back. Maybe next season we'll do that. But okay. yes, um, I, I want to see who has some culture things. So, um, you know, do either you have something that's like right on the tip of your tongue, ready to go? Well, okay. I have one that is like a little bit of a, um, okay. It's very on brand for me because it's very, 
very analog and it's also late. Um, <laughs> but it's also, uh, <laughs> it also feels like a little bit of a like a showing my hand a bit um, because mm. I, so as, as, as Adrian knows and as some of our listeners already know, I've been going down this rabbit hole around internet and technology and um, <clears throat> the future and <laughs> and how how social media and a lot of the digital frameworks that we have accepted for the last couple of decades are really, really destructive. Um, so I have been reading the work of this particular technologist named Jaron Lanier, who is like was the one of the creators of virtual reality technology. And he is like, uh, one of the things that's been interesting about reading his work is that he is like very, very much a self-proclaimed capitalist. And so it's been kind of an interesting journey reading his work as someone who's like explicitly not a capitalist. Um, And even that actually has been so revealing to me of how polarized our (laughs) political environment is that for me it feels like a reach to be like, Wow, I'm I'm reading the work of someone who's a capitalist. Like, right. <laughs> should I? Can I even tell anybody that I'm reading the work of a capitalist? You know, it's like, oh my god, wow, what a world we live in right now. But anyway, the one that I'm reading, the work of his that I'm reading right now is "You Are Not a Gadget," which actually I think came out in like 2005 or something. So this is what I mean, Yaba. This is what I mean when I say I'm I'm always late to the party. Decade. Um, but sometimes over a decade. But um, but. Uh, I'm loving what I'm learning about right now. And I feel like there's, I know the way my mind works. And so there's something that's happening on like a meta scale or Mm -hmm. like a, there's something that's happening that's more cosmic that's causing me to go down this rabbit hole. And I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to come out with, but there's a reason for it. But anyway, I wanted to share this really beautiful quote from the book that I just read last night um, that says, The plausibility of our human world, the fact that the buildings don't all fall down, and you can eat unpoisoned food that someone grew, is immediate palpable evidence of an ocean of goodwill and good behavior from almost everyone, living or dead. We are bathed in what can be called love. Tender. And it's like such an optimistic view of like (laughs) existence. (laughs) This is like the idea of like, guess what? You're standing inside of a building. There. Like the fact that that building (laughs) is standing and you're inside it in and of itself is evidence that someone wanted you to be safely inside that building. I love that. And use their skills to make it safe. There's so much more going on in this book about, you know, the way we're in relationship with technology. But I wanted to like, I just wanted to bring forward this like beautifully optimistic way of viewing the world like yes in the midst of the doom that we are experiencing it's like important to remember that actually we do live like there is an enormous amount of like desire for life absolutely amongst us oh we still here um what about for you yaba is there a top culture standing out for you um you know i i don't know i want to play along um, but, you know, I've just been so busy with this book promo that I feel like I've been missing a lot. You know, I'm always down for the memes. I'm always down for the TikToks, all the challenges. I'm here for all of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think I'm just um, 
corny as it sounds, I am very happy to be here experiencing this moment, Mm -hmm. given the year and the years past that I've had. I'm also very happy to see, for as much as I can be critical of it, you know, quarantine and everybody wanting to be woke has been what it is. But in this moment, I'm watching all these people who I love and admire have books come out and hit the New York New York Times and, you know, watching them elevate people getting deals. And I'm like, I know that person and that's dope. And it's about time and thank you, you know? So yeah. like just reparations, I'm here for <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely love that. Thank you. That's beautiful. Because I, I know I'm just sitting here like Brittany Cooper. That's what Miriam, it is. Kava, yeah. Sonia Renee, Taylor, yeah. love you. Yeah. Like, it just yeah. feels like mm-hmm. it's like boom, 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 every direction. It's it, you know, yeah, this is a, a really, a really rich time for black brilliance. Wow. And we're being allowed to say our truth. Yes. Yeah. Unfiltered. Yes. Without folks saying this is too black. Yes. Beautiful. This is too much, or white people can't take it. We get to get because now you want it. So yes. here you go. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody want this. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I have two little short ones. One is this, I knew you would have two. You know, you know me, girl. Um, I mean, I have fifty, but I'm gonna give you two little short ones. One is this incredible book that I have just been like deep diving in, and I got to have a conversation with the author last night. Um, it's called A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky. It's by Linnell George, and it's a deep dive into Octavia Butler's Huntington Library archives. And it's, it's the whole book is basically like Octavia's creative process and what you can learn from Octavia's creative process. And oh, wow. the title comes from like once when she was asked, what is science fiction? And she was like, it's a handful of earth, a handful of sky and everything in between. Um, but it's like, it's like nitty gritty. Like you see the list that she made. Here's what I have. Here's what I need. Here's how I'm going to do the budget. Here's what I'm manifesting. Like, these are my core practices. These are core items that were in the archives that the whole book is organized around these items. Um, This is how she grieved when her library burned down. Like, it's just intimate, beautiful. Like, I think anyone who's a writer, who's a creator needs to immerse themselves in in Octavia's creative culture. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, I just want to shout out Beyonce and Rihanna because, and actually Beyonce, <laughs> Rihanna, and Whitney Miro, because yes. I've been walking around my house. Those three who are all, to me, they're all perfect in different ways. Are you wearing onion? I'm literally wearing, wearing onion, onion right, right now? now. I'm wearing onion literally right now. Literally right now. Literally. <laughs> and oh, earlier I was wearing Ivy Park so. and onion together. So Whitney okay. is probably tired of me because I'm always in her DMs like, you're my favorite person. I think you're the best. I'm wearing clothes. Um, but I, I believe that like, I literally am walking around the house at all times these days wearing Savage Savage by Fenty on some level of my body and then onion on some level of my body and then Ivy Park to, as a finisher. And I bought some big old Ivy Park mittens. Honey, Adrian and lingerie is a show not to be missed. I am claiming yes. my lingerie years. Do those mittens, like, do they go over the jacket? So they're arm? not, like, they're how not, does it it's work? It's not a logical thing. And so it's going to hurt okay, your mind if it. you try to, like, make it logical. So, like, today okay. I wore them with this dress, which is clearly okay. a summer dress. And if you see what Beyonce's <laughs> done with them, she only wears them with a leotard and a scarf. So, you know, it's just do what you want to do, right? Um, I don't find that they go exactly with any jackets yet, but I think they could go with like a cool puffy winter vest. I'm going to keep working on this. Um, but mm-hmm. is, is this quarantine behavior? This is quarantine behavior. Fully. This is like you are walking around your house 
And for me, I'm at that stage of the quarantine where I'm like, okay. I'm tired of only wearing sweatpants every day and then a nice shirt when it's time to be on Zoom. I need yes. to, to like, these might be my best fashion years and I need to claim them. Um, so yes. I just want to shout out those three brilliant black women because, um, you know, just knowing, and mm. I get fooled by them, you know, cause seeing the clothing mm. on them and then having it show up in my house is, yeah. it's different. It hits it is different. different. It's it totally is different. different. You know, like every time, mm. every time I'm like, y'all are good salespeople because you're fine. <laughs> but, but you know what? But I you know what? And I go? feel fine. <laughs> so. But yep. the lingerie, it, I have to say, I have some of that um, lingerie that Rihanna makes, and that I haven't shit gotten is into fire. It. It's I might need to get into it. I will say this: fire. I have never been a big lingerie person. Like I've always, especially yeah, the huh. plus size stuff. I'm always like, mm, it's just a big bra. Like you can't play me. But yeah. Megan the Stallion <laughs> um, partnered with Rihanna on this particular set of things. I mean, I'll send you pictures, but I, I put it on. I was just like, every, everyone, everyone should feel like I feel like right now. The, sure, this is why yes. lingerie exists. And everyone in this household <laughs> agreed with me. <laughs> so, um, All right, girl. It was, a win. it was a win. And I just want to shout them out for the black joy um, that's happening. So we have some top culture. I want to shout out. I want to shout out Yabba Blay for being on yes. our show. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being Thank with you. us. Thank you so much for having This me. is absolutely magical. Thank you for coming out of your nap for this. Yeah. That was incredible post-nap Thank you. behavior. Thank you. Every time. Like, yes. yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash into the world show. Another incredible thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person or also just like write us a nice email just to our podcast. Email yeah, we account. love the nice emails. emails are great, too. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the very sweet and kind Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg.